going to talk about the idea of a service project definition equals each other. How about that? Service project definition each other. We're going to look at Romans chapter 15 verses 1 through 6. Here's what it says. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us must please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even the Messiah did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. Now, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement allow you to live in harmony with one another according to the command of Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. Let's pray over the Word. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for giving it to us. I thank You for... Allowing us to be able to dive in and understand, okay, what are you really saying? What does it mean to me? How does it change my life? What does it tell me that I need to obey? What does it tell me that I need to share with others? And God, I pray that you would help us to see that in your word today and that it would impact us both in the now and in the future and forever. And so, Father, we give you all the praise. Open our hearts and open our minds. Make things clear. God, I pray that you'll help me stay out of the way so that your word can communicate what is in it and not just what is in me. Because that is the only thing that will change people is you and your word through your Holy Spirit making that alive in our hearts. So we pray and believe these things in the name of your Son and our strong Savior, Jesus Christ. And the church together said, Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says this, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve... And to give his life a ransom for many. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 says, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. That's the statement of who Christ is, who Christ was, what Christ did. Son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Then he tells us to make our own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, although he was equal with God, did not use that to his own advantage, but instead he humbled himself and he accomplished what the plan was to bring about salvation to mankind. So I have a question for you. Got actually two questions. This is feedback moment. So how would you describe Christ when it came to serving others? A servant. What else? Joyful heart. What else? Compassionate. What else? It's feedback time, guys. You don't get to church and sleep, come to church and sleep. He was humble. Step out of your comfort zone. Ooh. What else? Is that it? 
Selfless. Not selfish, right? Selfless. That's how we would describe him when it came to him willingly laying aside his position, his actual rights. Right? He, that's what Philippians 2 says. It says that, that he, although he was equal with God and he existed in the form of God, he laid that aside, his rightful place, he laid aside in order to come to earth. I think we could sum it up by saying this, serving one another is central to the narrative of Jesus. That's just a core of who he is. A core of who he is is serving others and serving one another because what you ultimately have in the form of Jesus is God himself willing to serve those who actively oppose him. I don't know sometimes that we really think about it this way, that Jesus coming to earth to die for our sins and all that was, was not because that we were such great people and, and because that we had it all together, right? You know, and maybe we don't even still have it all together. If you've got it all together, I'm excited for you and I'd like to sit at your feet and learn <laughs> because I just don't know anybody that has it all together. I know a lot of folks that have it all together in Christ because they're trusting in him to have it all together. But, but in ourselves, I just don't know anybody that has it all together. Even people that appear to have it all together on the outside, I'm telling you, all it takes is the right thing to realize, man, I am weak in this. I may be strong in all these other things, but then I'm challenged with something that is beyond what I could have prepared for. Serving one another is central to the narrative of Jesus. One of the challenges for the faith community today is a lack of willingness to serve one another. That's, uh, yeah, you don't get an amen moment in some of that, but it is a lack of willingness to serve one another. Very specifically, I think that this lack applies strongly to the willingness to bear with one another when it comes to belief regarding right and wrong things or actions. Romans 15, that we started out reading, is actually a continuation of, obviously, of Romans 14. That's the most brilliant statement you'll get out of me today. Wow. It's 14 carries over into 15. 14 is going through an entire discussion to a church in Rome. He's writing to this church that um, had been started and, and you would you would realize in the area that you had the, the Jewish people who were considering themselves for a long time to be the church. And now you have Gentiles. That's everybody who's not Jewish, which I always tell you guys is, unless you're Jewish, that's, that's all of us, all right? You know, we, we all fall into that, that category. doesn't matter. doesn't matter what Asian, African-American, Hispanic, whatever. If you're not Jewish, we all fall into that same bucket together being Gentiles. These folks had come to Christ, but there was some conflict going on when you had Jewish people and Gentile people trying to come together. And so chapter 14 in Romans has a couple of points. In verses 7 and 8, he reminds us that none of us exist for ourselves, but rather we exist for Christ. He talks about we, we don't live to ourselves and we don't die to ourselves. Now, a lot of people take and misinterpret that with chapter 15, and they get that one little section out of context. They get a little fast is what it is. They want to get to chapter 15, 
But what he's saying in 14 is not the idea that we're seeing here about serving one another. He's laying out first in chapter 14 that you live and you die for Christ. Not for each other, for Christ. We're going to get to the each other in chapter 15. But if we get it established in and of ourselves that we don't exist, I don't live for myself, I don't die for myself, it is all for Christ. Then that's important, we're going to tie that in. Verse 12, he says, Then all believers will give account of themselves to God. Oftentimes we hear so much about you know, judgment and things like this, and we just want to do that in regards to, and talk about that in regards to those who don't know Christ. But all of us who know Christ will also stand, not to be judged in regards to salvation or not, but in regards to how we've lived our lives, the works that we've done, what we've accomplished with the knowledge of Jesus Christ that we have, and the talents and the abilities and the direction that he's given us and what we've done with it. That's why you, you read the passage where he talks about, it says that, that their works will be burned up, but they themselves will be saved as if by fire. Because he says, look, your salvation has been established in Jesus Christ, but yet how you live your life then matters. I will continue. I know I often talk about this, but I will continue to talk about it because once we're saved and we've accepted Christ, that's what becomes important now is how do we honor God with our lives? How do we use the, the things that He has placed into our lives, into our sphere of influence? How do we use that and how do we operate within that for His glory and for His honor? Verse 15, he goes on to say, but look, we can't destroy or damage the work that God is doing in someone else's life simply because we have a freedom to do something that their spiritual level of maturity doesn't allow them to do. Verse 17, he goes on to say that God's kingdom consists of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He makes a very, very powerful statement and says, whoever serves God in these things is acceptable to God and is also approved by mankind. How about that? That if you serve God in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, that you, are a, you, you, you honor God in that, but you also find approval in men. I think it's a very interesting thing that when we are truly serving and living like Jesus did, I honestly believe that although we see that the world persecuted Christ, and, and we see that the Bible tells us that all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution... I firmly believe that there is a part of the world that is absolutely looking for people to live like Jesus. I, you very rarely find someone who will tell you, even if they're an, an agnostic, even if they're atheist, no matter what they are, you'll very rarely find someone who will say, I hate Jesus. I hate what he stood for. I hate the way he lived his life. I hate what I read about him in the Bible. You don't find people saying that. What they say is, I hate Christians. <laughs> Y'all are so quiet, you know, on this one. That's what people say. I hate church people. I like Jesus. I read about him. He's, he's loving and he's kind. Now, you know, I mean, we can't ignore the fact that he was calling people out, though. You know, he's like calling people whitewashed tombs. You know, you look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You brutal vipers. 
You know, he wasn't exactly, you know, sitting around, you know, just milk toast, kind of hanging out, you know, dressed all like a hipster. I'm sorry. Sorry for all the hipsters. I mean, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus was like everybody else, right? The Bible even says, says there wasn't anything, he wasn't super attractive. Hate to destroy anybody's idea, you know. If you got a picture, you know, of him and all that, and you're going, oh, look. You know, the Bible says there was nothing comely about him that would make people be drawn to him. He just looked average and normal. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't Charlton Heston, you know, in the movies or anything like that. And Because the whole thing about him was it was his kindness that drew people. So what the Word of God says is his kindness that leads us to repentance. He was he would he could give a hardcore message about something, and people get mad. I mean, remember at one point religious people got mad about Jesus. It wasn't sinner folks getting mad about Jesus. People who were in a life of sin were drawn to him. They were coming to eat where he ate. They wanted him to come to their house. They wanted him to be around them because he drew people because he had an answer. Religious people didn't like it because he didn't have a list. Religious people got hung up, and it was religious people who thought about it at one point. They was ready to throw him off a cliff. I don't know too many folks, honestly, let's, let's be honest. I don't know too many folks in the United States that claim to be believers that, that your proclamation of the gospel has gotten so strong that people are ready to throw you off a cliff. You know, sometimes, sometimes I, I'm not sure we're even proclaiming the gospel at times. We're proclaiming what we're against. We're proclaiming what we, what we see as evil, but I'm not sure we're proclaiming the gospel that much. The good news, that's what the word gospel means, the good news. Verse 19, man, he issues a really powerful statement. He says, pursue what promotes peace. And then he tells them to not pursue that which tears each other down. And then we get to chapter 15 where we started today. Where he turns around and he says this. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. So it's a continuation of this thought where he's been talking about, hey, you guys are having conflict about things. What was the conflict? The conflict had a lot to do with what they were eating and drinking. The biggest conflict was that you had Jewish people who were, had been taught you don't eat pork, and, and there were people that had issues with if, if, if meat had... Um, had ever been offered to idols in a temple, and then it got sold in the marketplace. Oh, my goodness, you can't eat that. You know, it's the worst thing that could ever happen on the face of God's green earth. You had Gentile people who didn't even believe about those gods. They were accepting Christ, and they're going, we don't even care about any of those gods anyway, so I'm not real worried about if somebody offered that meat to him. That's some good-looking pork right there. I'm just saying. I got a, uh, I'm in one of these razor clubs, you know, where I don't have to go buy razors. They send me razors. And I was, I was opening up uh, one of the packs. He'd gotten under some, some mail at the house. And so I was going through and shredding stuff, you know, making confetti. And, uh, and, I, and so I come across this razor thing. I'm opening it up. And they always have the, these weird, supposed to be manly sayings on some of their stuff. And it... 
and it was advertised on the back. On the front, it said, there's an ad on the back, read it. I like that, you know, straightforward. So I flip it over. I can follow the directions. I flipped it over. And there's an advertisement on the back of it for a travel kit. And I was semi-interested, you know, because I'm having to make a few trips and got to make, you know, another one before the end of the year in October. And, and so I'm looking at this little drawing of this travel kit. And the coolest thing, ladies won't think this is cool at all, but the guys will, will you know, be like, yeah, you know. It showed some pouches on the side, and it had a note drawn to it and said, just the right size to carry pieces of bacon. And I was like, I've been on a plane where I might would have wanted to have a piece of bacon because all they bring is those little peanuts and a little old cup of water about that big. And there's about five peanuts in that bag of peanuts. And can you imagine the uproar that you could cause on an airplane when, when all the men started, I mean, they could have their headphones on and stuff and you start seeing men smelling bacon. We could probably make some money for the church. Just be like, hey, got some bacon back here for sale. How much would you be willing to pay for a slice of bacon? Hey. <laughs> so you had, you had a group of people who had no problem. They're going, bring on the ham, bring on the bacon. We're ready. Let's barbecue this thing. And, it, and, and so they're okay that that spirit's all right, but you got this other group that's going, y'all are all going to die and go to hell for eating that bacon. <laughs> you are not right with Jesus. Well, wait, wait a minute, you know. We've just now come to believe in Jesus, and we haven't broke free from, from our idea that you can eat some pork and have some barbecue and eat some bacon. And so, but they're all in the same church. Because they, they, they were really, you know, kind of, you, you would see a church set in place in a city. Not so much like there's a church over here and a church over there and a church over here. Now, they might have some stuff going on in their houses, but the church would be set up in the city. And so here you've got all of these folks who are in the same church in the same city. And what are they going to do? Because they don't agree on certain things that they believe are absolutely wrong. Jesus comes in and his whole life on earth was marked by self-denial and service to others. And the challenge about Jesus is that he broke down barriers of social taboo. It's, it's sad that the church is probably not the leader anymore in breaking through some of these issues that we see in our society. What did Jesus do that, that broke social taboos? Well, there's a couple of key examples. One is he ends up speaking with a Samaritan woman at the well. See, we forget. We forget. It actually wasn't that long in our society where our wonderful ladies that are sitting here were not treated as if they had equal standing before God and, and in society. All the way back when they were, it was absolutely not. It was, it was culturally, you, you were not, you weren't even second class. And so then you throw in that she was Samaritan I mean, quite not, there's no other description. She was biracial. And people looked and, oh my goodness, you can't talk to someone that's biracial. And you certainly can't talk to someone who's a female and happens to be biracial. And the disciples come back from being in town and here is Jesus 
sitting beside the well, talking to a biracial woman. What are you doing? That's their thought. What's he doing? He's going, I'm, I'm doing my dad's business. That's not what he said. That's, that's what he is portraying overall, though. I'm about my dad's business. My dad's business was, I'm here to save everybody. Amen. I'm here to be able to say that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither free nor slave. There's neither male nor female. No one has in Christ an inside track on being saved. No one has an inside track on being redeemed. No one has an inside track on having their sins forgiven. One of the others, he, he would engage with tax collectors. But everybody, oh my goodness, how could you be going to the tax collector's house? It'd be like if you had a, a friend who was a collection agent for the IRS, and he's been not only taking the money that was owed, but he's been taking more than was owed from everybody. And everybody in town knew it. But that's the way the government worked. And so it was okay. And so what does everybody think about him? They despise him. Because this guy is, he's taking triple, quadruple, more than what he's supposed to be taking. And everybody knows it. And Jesus, who is over here proclaiming freedom and setting people free and all this, he's going to eat at this dude's house? Really? After Jesus impacts the guy's life, what does he do? He ends up not only restoring what he'd taken from people, but he's, he's giving back all the extra and all kind of, you know, what do I need to do? So Jesus impacts people. He changes people. He changes people. They wouldn't want to make restitution for stuff. I was reading today, early this morning, I was doing some, some study, and I was reading that years ago, collectively, collectively, the church that, that, that would be similar to our idea of, of church, of, of Protestant believers and evangelicals. And the church in Japan came together and actually issued an apology that they had been involved in and supported World War II and the, and, and the attack on Pearl Harbor and all that because they said we should have as a church stood for what was right with God. And we verbalized support for our country attacking in Pearl Harbor and these other areas. Now see, there's people that get a little riled up when you talk about stuff like this because we're so adjusted to nationalist thinking and we're so adjusted to, to a lot of things in our society that we forget that we are members and citizens of a kingdom that is not here. And that's hard for us because we think about ourselves first even as American. Even in regards to church. It's hard for people to go to another country or go to another area and think, you know, not oh, I'm an American here, but I am here with brothers and sisters in Christ. One family, one body. The Bible talks about that. It says that there's one church, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. 
But he goes on to tell them, he says, we who are strong, Paul writing this in Romans, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weakness of those without strength. That word obligation, what do you think that means? There's another feedback moment. What do you think that means? Got an obligation. A duty? Yep. What else? Responsibility. What if, what if somebody says, I have a prior obligation? Commitment. Obedient. Yeah. What else? Do people easily break obligations nowadays? We won't even go into the list, right? It's easy in our society to break obligations. Financial obligations. Marital obligations. Just commitments that we make between each other. Yeah, I'm going to, I'll do this for you. And then, and then don't do it. We've created whole ways for us to be able to quickly, painlessly, and very inexpensively get out of obligations. But he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Luke chapter 9, verses 23, Jesus gave this explanation about what he expected. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. This was not only an example that Jesus set for us, it was the expectation of the characteristics that would mark those who said they were his followers. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't, hey, this is really what I'd like you guys to do. How many of you have ever had somebody work for you in doing something? I'm not talking about you had to be a boss or own your own company, but somebody's ever worked for you doing something. Raise your hand. I don't care if it's your kids at home, but you're telling them you got to do a task or whatever. Right? Okay. Particularly if you were paying someone money. Did you have some things that you said, in order for me to pay you to do this, I want you to do this, this, and this? Yeah? Yeah. It wasn't a suggestion, was it? It was, this is the expectation. Now, here's an interesting thing. Jesus tells us to come to him, to receive him as our Lord and Savior. We do that, and he establishes um, our, our change for eternity. And he really is not making a suggestion here at Luke 9, 23, when he says, if you want to come with me, then you've got to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross daily and follow me. It would kind of be like if we, uh, if we all said, hey, next Saturday... We're going to take a trip. We're going to let Lance lead the way because they're always riding that motorcycle going around a bunch of places. So he probably knows where a lot of stuff is that the rest of us don't know where it is. Or at least he knows how to get there. And so we said, we're going to have Lance lead the way. And Lance got out here and he says, okay, guys, next Saturday, here's what's going to have to happen. If you want to go with me, you're going to have to be here at 9 o'clock because we're going to leave at 9 o'clock. And if you want to go where I'm going, you better follow. Right? So, if you're not here at 9 o'clock, 
then what happens? You get left. <laughs> what happens if you don't follow? And you, well, you know what? I'm riding along, and I know Lance knows where we're going. I actually don't know where we're going. I, I can't see where we're going. He didn't even tell me where we're going. We're just going wherever Lance wants to go because he's leading the way. I don't know where we're going, but you know what? I think I'll just take a right turn right here. Lance is going straight, but I think I'll go right. Maybe he'll come back and look for me. <laughs> Maybe he'll just come find us all. And I think maybe we've read the scripture where that Jesus talks about leaving the 99 sheep and going and find the one that's lost. And maybe we just abuse that sometimes. That we don't think about, I need to closely follow after him. See, now I'm one of those people, if you tell me I got to follow you, buddy, I am on your bumper. It's going to be like, it's going to be like the povo <laughs> following you. I heard somebody say the other day, they said they saw a sign in a neighborhood. <laughs> Some stuff just makes me laugh. They said they saw a sign in a neighborhood that said, drive like your kids live here. This person said, you must not know my kids. <laughs> you don't want me to drive sometimes like my kids were here. So what you probably want to put a sign up that says is drive like you just left the bar and the police are following you. <laughs> Not that any of y'all should know what it's like about leaving the bar, but it just struck me as funny. You're going to go slow. You're going to obey all the laws. I was in a golf cart yesterday, some of the guys from our company, and, and I knew they were following right behind me like that, and I'm in a golf cart giving manual turn signal signs. And I heard them yell out, Is that your turn signal? I said, yeah, don't hit me. <laughs> Jesus said, hey, if you want to come with me, then you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow. Self-denial, bear a burden, follow the leader. So we've got Jewish and Gentile believers. Now I want you to think about this. This is probably the first time ever in their lifetimes that they've been in each other's houses. Think about this. They don't eat the same kind of food, so they're not, they're not hanging out and eating at the same places. I mean, there was difficulty when, when they started reaching out to the Gentiles because the Jewish people were going, whoa, wait, 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 you know? Remember, I mean, God even had to make it clear. He had to, you know, you got a, got a guy up on the roof, he's... He's having a vision. God has to, to show him that, hey, anything that I've made, it's clean. you got to understand, because I'm wanting you to reach out to people who are not of the Jewish people. you got to understand that I'm wanting to reach all people. I mean, God's having to, God's having to teach the people who are going to carry the message of the gospel, much less the average believer. And so here you have these folks that are finding themselves being in the same church and they're in the minority religion. It's not like the United States with Christianity being, you know, the biggest religion or anything like that. The, the biggest religion was Judaism. These guys are over here going, no, 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 you don't have to do any of that. You just got to follow Jesus and be set free. They're a small group coming up. And folks are losing all of their privilege within society because they're stepping away from Judaism that dominated the society. 
And they're stepping away from that saying, I'm going to follow this guy, Jesus. And now you want me to hang out with Gentiles? And now you want me to believe that it's okay that they eat pork and stuff like that that we got issues with? I mean, come on! And I got to go to their house? And you don't want me to like spiritually get all over them about you don't need to be eating that. You should not be eating that pork. That's what he's addressing in, in 14. And when he comes to 15, and he reminds them that, look, here's this major difference that they're struggling with, and you guys have got to be able to get along. 14 and 14, they're in Romans. Paul actually writes and he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now here's a guy who Paul describes himself at one point as he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's, he's as Jewish as it gets. That's what he's saying. I'm as religiously Jewish as it gets. I understand all this stuff I've been taught in the best schools. I understand all of that. But now I'm persuaded and I've been convinced because of God himself and, and through Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But he says, but I recognize that there are those who have come to maturity in Christ, and they understand that that thing is not an issue anymore. Now, I know, we're talking about food, so we're going to get there in a minute. You just hang, hang in here with me for a couple more minutes. So Paul is having to tell these folks, look, those who have, have gotten spiritual and material, they understand the message of Christ that this is not what matters anymore. It's not about the external observance. It's about you being changed in your heart. And more importantly, not turning around and destroying the work that God is doing in someone else's life because you're still hung up about this list. Or in reverse, that you look at that guy and you're just berating him because he still is convicted about something and therefore doesn't do it. And then you're beating him up about you're just not spiritually mature enough. Paul ends up saying something. He says, look, both people are trying to honor God. One is honoring God because they don't. Do those things. The other is honoring God because they recognize the freedom to do those things. However, however, he comes back in chapter 15 and he says, So look, we need to make sure that what we're doing is that we are focusing on bearing the weaknesses of others and not just doing what we want to do. Each of us needs to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, what's he saying there? He's not saying, whoa, you just need to, to give everything in. But he says, you need to have as your motivation that you want to see a brother and sister in Christ built up and grow. You want to see them become more and more spiritually mature. And if we were that way toward each other in all things, man, what kind of unity would there be? Well, in fact, he goes on to talk about that unity because he says, now may the Lord, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement allow you to live in harmony. I've, I've used this illustration and told you guys before. Does anybody know what it means to sing in unison? What's that mean? One voice, same Pitch is the same. You all sing the same note. 
What does it mean to sing in harmony? Different notes, but they work together and they complement one another, but they are not the same. He does not say about this, now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement allow you to live in unity with one another. Not in this. Now, elsewhere in Scripture we see that, that, that the Word of God says how good and pleasant it is that brethren dwell together in unity. But in regards to this type of issue, which is varying levels of spiritual maturity and being able to get along with each other while that's happening, he says, I want you to be able to live in harmony. You may be different, but you complement each other. You're not clashing with one another. I can tell you, all you got to do is hit a wrong note during the middle of a song while some people singing something. And folks that aren't musical will go, I don't know what that was, but it sounded like a train wreck. It was bad. I don't know what they did wrong, but it was bad because it no longer complements. He said, and that is according to the command of Christ Jesus. Why? So that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. Now wait a minute. Why does he talk about harmony in one spot and talks about unity in another, vo uh, in another place? Harmony and unity. Have you and your spouse ever disagreed about something? <laughs> wow, that was quick. Good job, Walker. Yes. I mean, even if you were dating somebody, you ever disagreed? What do you, what do you disagree about? Oh, I shouldn't ask this. Ever, oh, let me just keep it simple. You ever disagreed about where to go eat? All right. What did you end up doing? You what? What I wanted. Go to the first place that you talked about after discussing like 10. Are you playing the food game? What's the food game? The food wheel. You act. You actually. You guys have a food wheel. Wow. There's an opportunity for counseling. <laughs> we have a food wheel. <laughs> things you find out during service, Brian. Just the things you find out. Look, that actually is. That's a neat idea. If you guys couldn't, you know, figure out how to. You know, you had to just spin the wheel. That could be rough sometimes, though. But so, so just because that you ended up disagreeing about something didn't mean that you went, well, all right, we can't figure out where to go eat. Then we need to split up. You need to take your stuff, and you need to leave, and you need to get gone. Right? I mean, you just, there's some stuff you just, you see it, you don't agree on it. Sometimes you end up going there to eat anyway, don't you? Somebody gives in. That wasn't exactly where they wanted to go. But you end up and you give in and you do it anyway. Why? Because the relationship is more important to you than winning that one item. 
or else nobody wins because they spin the wheel in the two restaurants, and one of them want to go to this, one of them go to that one, and the one that shows up on the wheel is not what either one of them wanted to go to. Do y'all spin again if that happens? I'm just curious. I didn't know, you know. So look, so, so when it comes to church and the body of Christ and the fellowship of believers and the faith community, should the relationships not be more important than some of the individual things that we don't see eye to eye on? Now, Paul's making it very clear. He's not talking about things that biblically are, are called out as sin or wrong. In fact, you never see in, in Romans 14 or Romans 15 that he talks about any of this degree, disagreement in any way as being either, either party being sinful. He's not. In fact, he says the ones are doing, again, I mentioned that earlier, these that eat, they do so to honor God. These that won't eat, they do so to honor God. The motive behind both is right. But sometimes, even within the body of Christ, we get all bent up out of shape and we start disconnecting from relationship with each other because we don't exactly agree on something because we don't end up valuing the relationship more than we do this individual item that's not even sinful or wrong either way because both people's motive is they're trying to do what they think is right before God. The idea here of bearing the weaknesses of other believers or the weaknesses of other believers is not a begrudging tolerance. It's not, because look, y'all know if you've ever disagreed about eating, which apparently everybody said they have, you know, about where to go eat. Because y'all know how that story goes, right? Where you want to go eat, I don't care. All right, you don't care? No, wherever you want to go. Well, let's go to Lost Mexico, well, anywhere but Mexican. Well, let's go down to Jazz. Well, let's accept Chinese. Well, Golden Corral. You know I ain't eating at that place. There's bacteria everywhere. People sneezing all over everything. People just going off. Okay, where would you like to go eat? I don't care. Western Sizzling, no. Olive Garden costs too much. Okay, you got anywhere in particular? No, I don't care. Right? Y'all know it's true. He's not talking about a begrudging tolerance when he says bear one another's weaknesses. And he's not, because you know what happens sometimes in that discussion. After you've had all of that discussion, you know what somebody does. When, when, when it finally gets picked, somebody goes, fine, let's just go. I'm hungry. See, that's begrudging tolerance. That's that's not, what, that's not what we're being told as believers do. It's not, well, you know what, that person's there this way or they... Think about our world, guys. Here's a reality. Even generationally, we look at things differently. This is hard for most of us, but you know, if you go to our parents or our grandparents, they look at things, they look at life differently, they look at jobs differently, they look at how you spend your money differently, all kind of stuff. People that came through the Depression, they very much look at how money is spent, things like that, differently. You look, you, you move forward to our kids, and even, you know, if you've got kids that are a lot younger, I mean, you know, i got kids in their, you know, late teens and 20s, and then you got kids that are, early teens or whatever, they look at things differently. 
They look at technology differently. They all kind of things that are different. And churches are struggling and they're wrestling with that because they can't find a way to coexist. There's churches here in, in our general area that have split for lack of, that they couldn't agree and get some blend of music. People were willing to leave. And people were willing to tell them to leave. Why? Is the relationship not more important? That's what Paul is telling us about. He's saying, hey, look, just because you don't agree on, on certain things, let's move it away from the food thing that they were dealing with. It's a general lesson he's trying to teach believers because the world looks at us as a faith community. And when we can't even get along, we can't go to that event the Baptists are sponsoring it. We can't go to that event because it's some of them Pentecostal people that's sponsoring it. We can't be a part of that event because it's the Methodist. And we certainly can't go to that event that Unipoint has because they're non-denominational. <laughs> Nobody knows for sure whether they can agree with us because we don't have a label. How could you go to that place that doesn't have a label? Right? But we all are supposed to have a label. We're supposed to have this label that says, I'm a follower of Christ. And he told me to deny myself, take up my cross daily and follow him. We're supposed to be working toward a common goal, a common end. And that's what he expressed in verse 5 and 6. What he really is telling us there is very simple. It's very simple. He's making a very clear and plain explanation of what's going on. He's going to give you endurance. He's going to give you encouragement. You're going to live in harmony according to the command of Jesus. The whole end of that is so that how we live glorifies God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because we have a united mind and a united voice. What's our united voice? Our united voice is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Our united voice is one where we're able to say, here's the reality that we ought to live by. This is how we have come to know love. He, being Jesus, laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. Just pure and simple. I listen... I listen often to um, when you hear conversations with, with veterans that have, particularly those who have been um, in the fight as well, that have, have served, whether it was Vietnam or uh, we, when, when Bird and Wendy and Michelle and I and Caleb were still at, a, at another church before planning Unity Point, uh, there were some World War II veterans there that have passed on now. But when you would listen to these men and women who had served in the military and been under fire together, they had experienced some uh, young guy that, that actually then had, had served in, I believe, in Afghanistan, had been wounded, Purple Heart, and all kind of stuff. When you listen to people, they will talk about how that they would be willing to lay down their life. That was what you were counting on, was that the guys and, the, and the, the ladies that you were serving with, that they were willing to die for this cause, for, for that brotherhood, that unity. 
And we have something to learn as a faith community. Because people that were going into that military, they're not exactly alike. They don't all come from the same background. They're not the same color. They didn't come from the same socioeconomic background. They don't agree about all the same things. They don't necessarily agree about the same politics or anything else. But they agree about their mission and standing for one another. And he says, this is what needs to happen. We came to know love because Jesus laid down his life for us. So we should lay down our lives for our brothers. Why? Because in Romans 14... I'll tell you all the way to the beginning. He said, you do not live for yourself. And you do not die for yourself. You do so for Christ. And what did Christ do? Christ died for us. Therefore, we should lay down our lives for our brothers. If we're to live and die unto Christ, then the example that he set tells us how we're supposed to serve one another. I put this picture up when I started this today because I often will hear people say things like, hey, I'm looking for a service project to be a part of. We're often looking for some activity that we can do. I often hear people that's a good thing. I mean, people need... I, I'm watching right now, and I, I, I'm keeping up with some different churches that, that we're familiar with um, that are going and serving in Texas, and they're serving in Florida, and serving victims of, of the, the tragedies that have happened with the hurricanes and all this that's gone on. That's what we're supposed to look like. But not just when it's a hurricane that comes through when it's a marriage that falls apart, when it's, when it's a child that's sick, when it's a job that gets lost, when it's, you name it, you fill in the blank of, an, of a life experience that's, that's there and it's challenging and we're supposed to come alongside because he said, be willing even to lay down your life for your brothers. It's not about what we're eating. It's not about what we're drinking. It's really about can we get along with as a body of Christ, as a faith community, not unity point alone, but, but in our whole city, in our state, but in our local area, can we get along as followers of Christ? Because the world needs to see us not competing from church to church and not competing from denomination to denomination. They need to see us standing together under one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one Father, one gospel. They need to see that we're willing to get involved in a service project, and that service project is each other.